1: You've heard us say it before, the 2020 presidential
0: election was met with record voter turnout. Several states across the country made it
1: easier for Americans to cast their vote amid the deadly coronavirus pandemic.
0: The entire system of elections in the United States is, for the most part, set around the whole construct of having all the foxes guard the henhouse. Because if all the foxes are guarding the henhouse, then they're not going to let Some other fox go grab those eggs. And so understand there's a context to elections that, in most cases, in most places, works very well because you've got strong partisans from both sides or multiple sides.
1: Welcome to Dead Men Don't Vote. So we're here to ensure the right
0: to vote will be
2: preserved.
0: The podcast where you, the American voter, have the opportunity to understand how elections really work and how you can help improve the process and restore confidence in American democracy. We'll interview leading election experts, explore election controversies, and demystify election administration. From voter registration to ballot casting and counting, results reporting, and on through to certification and audits. We'll answer all your burning questions. Is vote-by-mail safe? How are foreign countries trying to interfere in our elections? And yes, do dead people actually vote? And we hope you will listen, like the future of our country depends on it.
2: This podcast is a Royfield brown production. Find others on iTunes.
3: All right. Yeah, I know.
1: If country borders and grids can fascinate you and state names intrigue you, if Atlases, Globes, city plans, subway maps, and of course, world maps are your thing, if you can name the capital city of Namibia, and if you get giddy
0: about flags, you are in the right place. This is Map Corner, a podcast about the love of maps brought to you by Roy Field Brown and Claire Asprey.
3: Now on with the show.
1: Hello and welcome to Map Corner, I'm Royful Brown who is back, back, back in California which means I'm 38.6 degrees north and 122.14 minutes west, which means I'm in Vallejo and I'm with Claire Asprey. Now Claire, I don't know why we even have this bit on the scripts, but I'm supposed to ask you, where are you today?
2: Well, unsurprisingly, I'm at 51, 52.1 degrees north and 0.5 degrees east in Bedfordshire, in Clapham. But I'm particularly grateful right now that I'm allowed to leave the house because I have COVID in the house. But I don't yet have COVID, so I'm allowed to go out, which, which I don't know how long that's going to last. So, you know, I'm, uh, I'm just very appreciative of being able to leave the front door right now.
1: So you're going to abandon your daughter? to the ravages of this pernicious... Well, she's disease. not really
2: had any symptoms yet. It's been it's like three days and you wouldn't even... If it wasn't for a testing, we wouldn't know she had it. So, um,
1: mm. you know. bit like me when I was due to jump on, on my plane and 24 hours beforehand, just three weeks ago, they said, you're not going on a plane to America because you have COVID. And I felt as right as rain. But folks... You'd only hear about my travel woes. Map Corner is the podcast dedicated to the love of maps and to all things cartophilic. So if Peter's is your projection, you're in the right place.
2: And in this episode, we're really pleased to be talking to Professor Joni Seeger, who's the author and compiler of The Women's Atlas, which is a fantastic book.
1: And we have an audio postcard from Pat Hanavan, our very own Pat, who's not with us today. Hopefully he'll join us later. Don't forget to review us on Apple Podcasts or on other podcast platforms.
2: And once again, we're recording with some of our Map Corner listeners. Uh, if you want to join in the next broadcast, do join the Facebook group uh, to get the details. We post those on every, every time. And um, if you're not on the Facebook, and uh, send us a message via Twitter or via email to get the link for next month's show.
1: We will be recording the first Saturday every month at 6 p.m. UK time, which is 1 p.m. Eastern, which unfortunately for us in the Pacific means that it's 10 a.m. Now, today we are interviewing Joni Seeger, who is all manner of awesome. Claire, why don't you start proceedings with our wonderful guest?
2: Okay, so we're uh, we're all talking about the Girl Power today and the Women's Atlas and really understanding Uh, the world through uh, gender eyes, I think. And one of the things I really love about the the Women's Atlas that Joni put together is it just contains such a wealth of information. It's got maps, it's got infographics, it's got stats, it's got the whole lot. So uh, uh, Joni, how did you come to put it together?
3: Oh, hi, thank you. I'm so glad to be here and with uh, all, all of you online. Thank you for inviting me. And I actually have to say, I didn't know about this podcast until Claire contacted me many months ago and it's like very exciting that you have this podcast so good on you thank you
1: um <laughs> well Joni, just before you start right if you're going to pay us a compliment have you written us a five-star review
3: not <laughs> she will I, finish, though. I i i i actually just wrote it down you can't see i wrote apple podcast on my <laughs> well done on my well notepad done. here so. so how did this start this started when i was a graduate student in geography in you know a long time ago. Let's just leave it at that. And in my non-school identified life, I was very involved in feminist movements and political movements. And then I would come to the university and it's as though the entire feminist movement, we're talking about the 1980s, I'll give you that much, just didn't exist. You know, that is like, there was no uptake of anything about gender or women or what we would say called women's studies or uh, women's issues at my postgraduate program at university in geography. Geography was very late to cut. It was one of those really intransigent and very male dominated disciplines that came very late to looking at genders, what we now call gender stuff. So uh, a friend and I also in postgraduate school, we, got really fed up one day. And actually, we were inspired by a series of atlases that perhaps many of you know. It was from a small London-based press called Pluto Press, doing a lot of labor publishing. And they put out an atlas called State of the World Atlas. Does anyone remember those? State of the World? Amazing. Yeah. All right. We We got one or two takers here. So The thing about the State of the World Atlas was that it was paperback. It was inexpensive. It had amazingly bright colors and amazingly diverse and radical topics. And when I, as a geographer, saw this atlas, it's like, oh, yes, this is what an atlas should be. It shouldn't be this big, heavy tome that you pull down from the bottom shelf and it's always an atlas of trains or wine or uh, explorers, you know, and there was this kind of like popular pitch to the general public, really engaging atlas was fantastic. And my friend and I said, wow, we need, they need, no, at first we said, oh, wow, they need to do a women's atlas in this same kind of spirit. And then that eventually became, over just a few beers, that became, oh, we should do this women's atlas. And through, so through Friends of Friends, we were put in touch with Pluto Press and Eventually, Pluto Press, the Atlas series, went to a wonderful, wonderful publisher called Myriad Editions, based in uh, Brighton. So that was how it all started. It was actually frustration out of not seeing women anywhere in my kind of professional domains of thinking about geographies. So that's how it all
2: started. And uh, we've got lots of information in. So, how do you decide which topics to cover? Because it's everything from politics to climate change to. Yeah, things that are very home-based to things that are very sort of multi, kind of, I don't know, multinational. There's a whole load of different range of things there. How do you you whittle that down?
3: Well, I mean, that's that's actually kind of a a really important part of what we do and the tussling we have with our editors. But essentially, a lot of work such as this would start from data sources and say, okay, let's figure out where the data are and let's map it. We started the other way and said, What do we want to know about women's lives? And then we'll figure out how we're going to show it. So we do have the kind of the chapter divisions, not that it makes a great deal of sense, but the chapter divisions include things such as body politics, you know, sports and beauty and prostitution and trafficking. So it's like body politics and work and education and power. Of course, it's all about power, but that in a formal institutional sense and around reproductive rights and reproductive issues. And one of my favorite awful sections is called Keeping Women in Their Place, which is looking at the social and institutional mechanisms by which women are often literally kept in their place. So we, we started from a kind of broad spectrum of what goes on for women and indeed for men in their everyday lives. And then let's figure out how we can include it in the atlas, which is not easy because, you know, some stuff has pretty straightforward data correlates. So if you want to know women in institutions, you know, so percent of women in governments, you know, bingo, got that data. You wanted to know women in the UN, bingo, got that information. Women, school teachers, yeah, easy. But What can you map about the broad ranging concepts such as beauty and the extent to which norms of beauty, which women are supposed to aspire to, what can you map about that? I mean, we could talk about it forever, but what can be mapped? And in fact, in that instance, on beauty and the kind of driving construction of kind of normalized beauty, what very Western visions of what women's beauty is or should be. And for that, we use surrogates. So I think the map includes cosmetics. It includes the cosmetics industry. It includes the winners of international beauty contests, which I think is not actually all that interesting, although it does show geographic clustering. So for a lot of the information that we wanted to show, starting from the position of what we want to show about women's lives... Uh, or a lot of it we have to use hopefully clever and interesting surrogates because there's not an actual data set that captures it.
2: And, and this is, I think, the fifth edition. So I'm interested, I ha- have you chosen different things? What, what's gone in over time? What's got lost over time? How how has the data changed in that time?
3: Uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I actually should go back and do a kind of side-by-side uh, content check. and I, And I haven't done that. I mean, in general, I would say we, you know, what's changed is, as our social realms have changed, looking at women's organizing and the Me Too movement and much more intersectional analysis of you know, the overlays of race and ethnicity and sexuality and women's identity in the broadest sense. Also, I would say one of the newer domains, which I'm very keen on, partly because I do work in it in my other life, is environmental issues. So, this is in previous editions of the Atlas, we've had a little bit on what you might call environment. In this one, we have more clearly environmental topics such as malaria or a chemical pollution and drinking water. And one of my favorites, toilet activism. You know, the um, What's called particularly coming out of uh, India, the right to pee movement. Can we say that on the podcast? The right to pee. Yeah,
2: yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, yeah, yeah. We Absolutely. we
1: we prefer because we're we're we British English speakers here. Uh, yeah, the right, right. To, but we'll accept pee. We'll, we'll
3: accept pee. pee. All right. So, which is a really interesting movement, the um, kind of toilet rights movement, I think is fascinating. And it comes out of women's activism. And those of us who are women know that whenever you're about in any urban setting, there are no women's toilets, or there's one, and the line is always six times as long as the men's toilet. That is the toilet provision for women is, you know, it might be a very, you know, seemingly pressing inconvenience for us if we're at a concert or whatever. But for many women in many urban environments, it's a real health and public rights threat to just not have any toilets available. So I love that movement around urban environments and toilets and kind of adopting that as a feminist that, or the foregrounding of that as a, as a feminist issue.
1: I'm going to ask a two-part question. So there's a few editions of the book, Is there one metric which you've maybe had from the start, which you're noticing a regression in terms Um, of women's activity or or access to? And then mm -hmm. kind of, you know, I had a brief look at, at, at the book and. I love I love maps because I love colors and shapes. Tell us. So the second part is how important was it for you to be in part, to be really involved with the process of how to put all the infographics together because it, they really do suck you in. So first, have we seen a regression, and then tell us about your involvement in physically how the book actually looks.
3: Yeah, great questions. In terms of regression, sitting here particularly, I would say right now in the United States, like please let me out of here. But the challenges to uh, women's reproductive rights is, particularly in the U.S., is kind of astonishing. And one of the things that underscores is that the rights of any um, group that's not particularly well entrenched in halls of power, those rights are always fragile. And You know, we think we've achieved a certain position, social position or certain rights. Um, But uh, you have to keep you have to keep your your eye on it and you have to keep your activism up because there are very powerful forces that want to to use the expression of one of my chapters, keep women in their place. And certainly the rollback of women's reproductive rights, I mean, they're in Europe. Europe, the Poland struggles, the struggles of Polish women, certainly in the U.S. And in many countries now, we see that governments remain kind of implacably uninterested in the oppression of indigenous women, whether you're talking about Canada to the Maquiladora women in Mexico, to the Yazidi women in uh, in Iraq. Governments are still very reluctant to put protections in place for minority groups so I would say there certainly are regressions particular regressions and in some ways again particularly thinking about the U.S. right now overall regressions which I'd love one to one of the
2: things that stood out to me about one of the maps which is the the child marriage in the USA map yes like, right. the Shocking the figures there were oh my god like 10 year olds getting married and it's really it's a it's just basically a way of legitimizing rape isn't it Um, It is. It absolutely um, is. Like I, I hadn't really appreciated the extent of child marriage in the USA, (laughs) comparatively, kind of you know modern Western society. But yeah, it was it was a real eye opener.
3: Which is again,
2: it's all about prioritising the rights of the unborn child to be in a legal marriage rather than the rights of the child who is pregnant, which is horrific.
3: Pulling up, I'm just pulling up that page. That page because I, I I was shocked too. Now the the numbers, the actual absolute numbers, are not that large, but it's shocking that that child marriage happens at all in the U S. And but one of the one of the as, as I started to look into this, and there are a couple of activist groups, very good activist groups in the U S. That are uh, really trying to. Keep this issue. Put this issue on the front burner and keep it there. One of the drivers of girl marriage, child, girl-child marriage in the U.S. and elsewhere, is that well. One of the the overall drivers is that men and boys should have access to women sexually, but that reproduction should happen in the context of marriage. And so, I just want to tell you this little story. It's in the it's in the book. So, um, short, very short paragraph. In 2017. A 17-year-old Girl Scout, I think you'd call her a Girl Guide, started a legislative campaign in New Hampshire to raise New Hampshire's minimum age of marriage to 18. It, in fact, it was a much lower marriage, and some states don't have a minimum age of marriage. What is it in the UK? What's the minimum age of marriage? 16.
2: 16 mm- with consent, with parental consent, I, consent, I think. And yeah. then
3: without. without.
2: Okay, so this young woman
3: wanted to raise New Hampshire to state in the US, wanted to raise the minimum marriage age to 18. Republican representatives in the New Hampshire legislature killed the bill. And here's one of them commenting on why he voted against this bill. Quote, if we pass this, we will ensure forever that every child born to a minor will be born out of wedlock. So his concern was that young girls who become pregnant should only be pregnant in the context of marriage. Therefore, we can marry off young girls. And it's like, when I heard that, it was like, are you kidding me? But this kind of circular logic that, well, if young girls are, as, as you say, Claire, essentially raped and become pregnant, then they should be marriageable and they should, they should be married and they should be marriageable. And this kind of circular lo- logic is, is really scary. And I think you'll find that in many of the opposition to closing down early marriages, the sense of oh, but then what would we do with the pregnant girls? Like, well, let's start by asking why they're pregnant in the first place at age fourteen or fifteen or sixteen. We could go on about that, but should I should I go back to Roy? Yeah, Field's no, go on to the second question. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yeah, yeah. it's great. The yeah, design is fantastic. Design is fantastic, and uh, I give full credit for that, to the wonderful designers at Myriad Editions. And we worked very closely. I mean, as you might guess, or be able to tell, I'm a person of fairly strong opinions about information and how it's presented. So I would often, when I would send in a manuscript for a topic, I would often say, well, I think we should show it this way, and perhaps we should do this and sometimes I was right and sometimes I was wrong and sometimes they agreed and sometimes they didn't, but the designers would then pick it up and we would actually, we had a really great relationship. These, many of these people have been my friends for many years now, having published with them over a long period of time. And so we would have fairly kind of continuous back and forths. And you know, sometimes we tussle a little bit about. I go, oh no, that looks terrible, or they'd say, oh no, we can't do that. But it was actually a very amicable and and lovely process to think about how to how to display the the information in its best form. And often that form, as you said, Clara Royfield, you know, there are a lot of maps in this book, but there are a lot of them are infographics too. And so where we have going back to one of the comments I made earlier about partial data being available or only some kind of indication of data being available. Where that was the case, we'd often put an infographic. Because if you have a global map and you can only apply color to six countries, it looks kind of dorky, (laughs) not not very effective. So uh, in that occasion, we'd turn to infographics. So the book kind of goes back and forth between or combines both infographics as well as more conventional maps. And I really have come to love infographics. I think they're very, as mapping is, I think it's very democratizing because people can look at an infographic who feel they have no specialist knowledge and they can get something from it. And same thing with mapping. You know, I've had uh, school, um, very early grade school teachers tell me they use the Atlas in their classes. And it's like, hmm, I'm not entirely sure that's a great idea for young children. But But it's because... As a non-specialist, and even as perhaps a young, a youngish, grade school child, you can look at a map and if even if you just start by saying, "Huh, why are all those countries red, or all of those countries are green?" You know, what's the similarity? What's the difference? And I think that the visual display of information encourages that kind of curiosity, and it doesn't set up quite as high a barrier to people who are not specialists. You can say. Come on in, you can look at this map, and we can we can all get information from this. and that's often the case with infographics too. It's kind of a very I say opening and democratizing way of getting information, I think
1: or I, hope. I could not agree with you more. And on that note, what we have to do is go to our second section, which Ooh. is our audio postcard, which for the lucky people who are, part of this live recording, it's of course a video postcard. This is the Bay of Fundy, and this is by Ooh, our Pat Hanavan
0: My audio postcard is from my favorite geographic feature, the Bay of Fundy, home of the highest tides on earth. The Bay of Fundy is the long, narrow body of water that separates the Canadian provinces of New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. The Bay is about 150 kilometers long, and 52 kilometers wide at its entrance, which is just about at the border between Maine and New Brunswick on the north side and the western end of Nova Scotia on the south. The bay gets a bit narrower and eventually splits into two arms at its top, the southern one forming Minus Basin. That's where the highest tides are. There, at the head of the Bay of Fundy, high tide can be 17 meters above low tide. That's the height of a five-story building. It's dramatic and you can see it happen as you watch. A boat that's sitting on mud when you go into a store to do your shopping can be floating and ready to sail away by the time you come out. And the power of the water coming in and going out is awe-inspiring. In just over 12 hours, about 110 billion tons of water flows in and then back out of the Bay of Fundy. That's equivalent to the flow of all the waters of the world for 24 hours. Those big tides happen thanks to something called tidal resonance. That's what happens when the amount of time it takes a large wave to travel from the mouth of a bay to the far shore and back to the mouth is the same, or nearly the same, as the time between the high and low tides. The Bay of Fundy happens to be just the right length so that by the time the water drains out completely, it's almost exactly the moment that the tide starts to come in again, a little like the water sloshing back and forth in a bathtub. The indigenous people of the region, the Mi'kmaq, have a legend about Fundy's great tide. The legendary creator and hero Glooskap wanted to take a bath. Glooskap commanded Beaver to build a dam at the mouth of the bay to trap the water for his bath. <clears throat> Whale was angry about this and demanded to know what stopped the flow of the water. Glooscap, not wanting to annoy Whale, instructed Beaver Zen to break the dam, but Whale was impatient. He began to break away at the dam with his tail, and these great movements set Fundy's waters in motion. The power of the water is so great that at the top of the bay, it pushes water the wrong way up the rivers, then drags it out again. The incoming upstream wave is called a tidal bore. There are tidal bores on the Petty Kodiak River in New Brunswick and on the Salmon and Shubenockety Rivers in Nova Scotia. The tidal bores make an exciting raft ride. Hop into your raft and you don't even have to paddle. Just ride out on the outgoing tide and right back in on the wave of the tidal bore. That was our older daughter Louise's bachelorette party. Another fun activity that I don't do is race the tides. If you're a runner, maybe you'd like to run the Not Since Moses, which is a five or ten kilometer race across what is basically the ocean floor. The race goes from five islands in the Minas Basin near the top of the bay. And the challenge is it's muddy. Of course, you don't have to race other runners. If you prefer to walk, you can take a carefully timed hike on the fundy floor in many places near the top of the bay, and you're only racing to get you're only racing the tide to get back. I haven't had the nerve yet. I have, however, visited the Joggins Fossil Cliffs, now a UNESCO World Heritage Site. There in the cliffs along the Fundy Beach, you can see the geological layers almost in diagram form, and you see perfectly fossilized plants and animals, sometimes with their dens or footprints and food, including some animal species found nowhere else. My daughter, Louise, and her family now live in Wolfville, a college town that's also on the Minas Basin. As I record this, I'm planning to fly to Halifax tomorrow, and by the next day, I'll be in Wolfville, sitting on the dock, watching the tide roll. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
3: Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? Right.
1: way. Thank you, Pat Hannavan for that. I oh, didn't know anything be. about the, uh, the pay of fundy. It was utterly a, a, a kind of a, a moment of e- exploration for me in, in the kind of educational sense. So thank you for that, Pat. And uh, we will tell you, a uh, good listener, how you can actually send us in an audio postcard later on in the show. But Joni, we, we need to come back um, onto on you. So... What edition is the Atlas at right now? Five. Five. Right. So Five.
3: every everyone painful. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, great when it's done, but oh, the doing of it is. How just... long does
2: it take to put a next edition together? Years. <laughs> yeah. I <I'm> mean a... yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. from say I love that audio postcard. I love that that it's a feature of this podcast. It's really great. And as I said, just as we were getting going, I'm I'm Canadian, so I I did know about the Bay of Fundy, but I loved the, the visuals. And um, coincidentally, just yesterday, I was talking to a friend about why collectively we're not tapping more tidal power. And so I'm now especially curious about whether there are tidal energy systems being developed around the Bay of Fundy. So doubly interesting. Thank you.
1: It's the most powerful tidal system in the world and it funnels more water than all the ones combined like i i found that yeah. to be a stunning bit of you know in, in me too,
3: me what
2: me amazing too. Results, like, like you say jenny like if you can capture the energy of that why, why are we still doing old style uh, power stations <laughs> oh yeah
3: yeah. now that's a whole other thing we need to
1: talk about (laughs) but i tell you what we do need to what we do need to talk about is getting our good uh listeners or dare i say viewers on this zoom call into this chat so if you have um, a question uh for Joni, why don't you unmute yourself unburden yourself by by being mute and be vocal and, and throw a question in and just just whilst you're maybe girding your loins for a question pat graves says there are several tidal bores along the alaskan peninsula as well yeah i i would have thought so looking at that jack jagged coastline but i i i don't quite understand tides and i don't understand even though it was so explained in, in the video just the sheer amount of water just beggars belief which is going back and forth and so fast as well so fast that one of the videos which i did see was which i didn't include on this was three people just stood um, in the water for 45 minutes and oh. by the end of it so they start with just by their toes in 45 minutes they're almost submerged they it, it moves so fast so fast but anyway if you've got a question please unmute yourself and and jump in because this podcast needs the brains trust because Claire and I just aren't clever enough to ask good great questions. <laughs> so 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 Ken Nick Etal please join us and thank you Jan Mitchell for joining us. I think it's your first time also. In terms of so if if the, if you if you're on your fifth edition, Joni, how what editorial decisions are you making? Let's say throughout the year to maybe add or subtract away from the book. You know what are those considerations?
3: Yeah, actually, I'm not right now <clears throat> thinking about the next edition. I'm kind of taking a <laughs> relief, a relief break. But uh, it, it's always in the back of my mind, and one of one of the things that's it's always kind of tantalizing is that we really should have an online edition of this that's easily updatable because some of the very specific information. Well, let me start again. The broad topics. Whoa, interesting view. <laughs> the broad topics remain more or less steady across editions but the the specific information of course changes I mean changes almost literally every day and I'm not so worried about that because even if some of the very specific data points are out of date or need to be uh, or would be different if you did it now again the purpose of this atlas is going kind of to put broad concepts forward so but on the other hand it would be really great to have super up-to-date information, data. That would take a small team to um, to put online and to keep it updated. And if anyone wishes to fund a small team on an ongoing basis to do so, be in touch. I mean, it'd be very, it'd be quite an arduous um, quite compelling project, I think. So so that's one of the things that I, you know, I'll be reading the paper, listening to the radio, and there'll be some change in, you know, in new findings about health conditions in a country or, you know, d- disasters. For example, I was just, I'll be paying a lot of attention to the disaster in uh, Tonga, the volcanic disaster in Tonga, and wondering how that's rippling through Tongan society Differently for for many classes of people, including men and women, and it'd be great to be able to update that, but that's not possible right now. It's just a stream in my head right now. Gotcha. And
2: I think some of that stuff is so new as well. I mean, I really like the bits in this in this edition, which were around sort of digital activity, yeah. people who had access to a mobile phone or the internet, uh, a whole load of stuff around you know people who are now banking <clears throat> online in a way yeah. that you know they, they were they whole whole sort of parts of the world where they haven't gone through the like, traditional banking structures and they've just gone straight into some sort of like mm-hmm. online um, right. banking and currency exchange on phones. But obviously access to the the hardware and the internet connection is such an important element of that. And again, that unsurprisingly reflects power and control and wealth and, yeah. and, and gender. And, you know, but that's such a dynamic picture because, you know, that the, the reach of the internet is, you know, it's so exponential. Yeah. Trying to pick a moment in time for a book. It's gonna be so different in a year's it's time. Probably, totally, different. And certainly yeah. over the pandemic, it's it's driven so much different yeah. sort of engagement online too. But I'm glad you really I'm glad you picked that up,
3: Claire, the the business about online connectivity or mobile phone connectivity. And also I would say we have to add in access to electricity is one of the preconditions for being uh, fully able to take advantage of internet. It's not only the hardware and the literacy and the access, and but there's also uh, electricity. But there are huge gender gaps in many parts of the world in access and use, access to and use of uh, mobile phones. And, you know, I do a lot of international work and what might be called broadly international development work. And there's always kind of this trope that's going around about, well, it's so great. Mobile phones have now penetrated. That's always the language. they've <laughs> penetrated, you know, everywhere, even in the poorest world. And it's like, well, yes. And it is true that, as you say, Claire, in some ways, in many communities have kind of skipped over traditional communication systems straight into mobile. But then you dig down a little bit and there are huge gender gaps. So when enthusiastically, uh, it's often companies involved in consumer activity, they go, oh, but, you know, everyone has access to mobile phone. It's like I kind of wag my finger and say, no, actually, that's not true. It is astonishing how much uh, mobile phone technology and access has spread around the world, but the, by no means can we say, quote, everyone has access to mobile phones and everyone knows how to use them. It, it's a very significant gap. It's also a very significant age gap, as we all know, because we all make jokes amongst ourselves about, you know, needing an eight-year-old to figure out how to use our, our internet systems. But, but, but it's certainly a big gender gap, pretty much in large, pretty much in most places in the world.
1: Mm. Yeah. It, it, it absolutely is and, and on that note right we have to go on uh to to the quiz good people now you will know that our claire who puts these quizzes together she's pretty fiendish now she's told me she said in she says royfield this time it's not so bad right so, no no
2: i didn't say that at <laughs> all <laughs> You, you, okay, did, you another said another one where You'll have to guess rather than know the answers, potentially, unless you happen to have a copy of the women's office <laughs> in front of you, oh, because God. that's where right. all the information comes from. Now, so, uh, you know, if you've revised ahead of the time, then you'll do well. But no, it, yeah, it's, yeah, it's educated guesses more than actual knowledge, I suspect.
1: Whoever wins this quiz not only gets bragging rights, but they also have the honour of doing next month's audio postcard, which, of course... On the video call, is a video postcard and i keep on saying this but i will one day get around to uploading these all to youtube because these these are wonderful things and they shouldn't just be left in audio form on the podcast so question number one Sport. which of these women's sports sports claire come on now we're british i'm gonna read the i'm gonna read this again in the way it should have been written sport which is single and plural which of these women's sport was the earliest to be included in the olympics was it a archery b swimming or c equestrian which of these women's sport was the first to be included in the olympics was it a archery b swimming c equestrian question number 1 question number 2 we're still on sport which country was the first to offer equal pay to its men's and women's national football teams i know the answer to this is it a Nigeria, B, Norway, or C, Nicaragua? Which of these was the first to offer equal pay to its men's and women's national football teams? Was it Nigeria, Norway, or Nicaragua? Question number three, we're on to politics. Which of these countries have a quota for women's representation in national governance? Is it A, China, B New Zealand, C India, or D Saudi Arabia? Which of these countries have a quota for women's representation in national governance? Is it A China, B New Zealand, C India, or D Saudi Arabia? We're on, and it to... might
2: be more than one. That's the other thing to know.
1: Ah, thank, thank you. Well. All right, uh, we're on to beauty. Which country has provided the most winners of Miss? world a venezuela b australia or c brazil i think i know the answer to that not 100 percent sure read that one again we're on to beauty which country has provided the most winners of miss world is it a venezuela b australia or c brazil demography the lowest birth rate in the world is 1.2 in hong kong portugal singapore and south korea but which country has the highest birth rate at 7.6 good homes is it a niger b burundi or c mexico the lowest birth rate in the world is 1.2 and that can be found in hong kong portugal singapore and south korea but which country has the highest birth rate at 7.6 i also think i do know this one it's is it a niger b burundi or c mexico still on demography women live longer than men but which country has the highest life expectancy for women is it a chile b hong kong or c italy women live longer than men But which country has the highest life expectancy for women? A. Chile. B. Hong Kong. C. Italy. Question number seven, religious freedom. Only one country has laws both requiring women to wear religious dress and prohibiting women from wearing religious dress. Which one? Is it A. Russia, B. Belgium or C. Sudan? Religious freedom. Only one country has laws both requiring women to wear religious dress and prohibiting women from wearing religious dress. Which one is it? Is it Russia, Belgium or the Sudan? And the last question is about finance. In most countries, more men than women have a bank account. But can you identify the country in the list where more women than men have a bank account? Oh, it's a daisy. Look, 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 look at it. my answers.
2: All right, I can tell you it's A, Jamaica, B, Philippines, or C, Morocco.
1: Thank you for saving my blushes there, Claire. Uh, can you give us those again?
2: Yeah. So in most countries, more men than women have a bank account, but which of the countries in this list ha- are where more women than men have a bank account? Is it A, Jamaica, B, Philippines, or C, Morocco?
1: Thank you very much, Lee Claire. And just just before we go on to um, social media roundup, Ken has has been bragging in the chat, saying that he has rafted the tidal bore in Nova Scotia. He's a proper action man Ken. Ken, when did you do that? Oh, that would have been in 2009. I was in Nova Scotia for a family reunion. Uh, The McDonald's lived in in Nova Scotia before coming to the United States. And it it, it was quite a thrill. I've done a lot of rafting on rivers in North Carolina this this was similar it, 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 except you know the water's flat until the tide starts coming in and then you get the wild ride we also did some mud sliding you can go up on the banks it's extremely muddy and it's just thick gooey mud and it's very messy but you can slide in the mud kind of like sledding Wowza. <laughs> uh, thank, thank you for that, Ken. We always like an action man to be part of a proceedings here because I tell you what, it ain't me. Now, Claire, social media round of what we got.
2: Already. So it's been a little while since we've recorded, but I'm trying to catch up on some of the uh, some of what we've been doing over that time. On Twitter, there's been a, uh, a few cool maps that have been... Um, shared their magic at mungo's cursed figures as as shared of couple one that was really quite nice was uh, it's about lighthouses of europe but it doesn't just show you where the lighthouses are in theory it shows you the color of the light that they flash and the the speed at which they flash now If you go into the thread below this, there's a whole lot of people complaining that you've missed this lighthouse or that lighthouse doesn't flash quite like that. And so, yeah, there's always there's always a critic, isn't there? But actually, as a map. It looks so lovely because it's sort of twinkling uh, around the coastlines in, in a really beautiful way. So that's that was pretty cool. And we actually had a map corner tagged a picture from Rosemary J. Brown, who's going to be, our guest next month. Looking at an illustration of Nellie Bly's race around the world like Phileas Fogg. So that was that was really nice to see. And, uh, and there was sort of map adjacent. I mean, you know how I sometimes push the boundaries on this, but there was an amazingly bonkers thread around Christmas time. Uh, this guy had posted, uh, it was always oh, like they do like these, you know, they do like World Cup of when they sort of have like a knockout competition. And it was places in Nottinghamshire which sound like American golfers. <laughs> Put it on the map corner hashtag uh, i can't begin to tell you it's it's all sorts of fun it's not really about maps it's but it's place names so you know it's kind of close mm-hmm. and some of the places in nottingham nottinghamshire do sound like american golfers what can i tell you so uh th- that's one to look for that was a lot of fun I mean, um, is there a
1: town called fuzzy zella in in nottinghamshire
2: not to my knowledge you're gonna ask me to find it now aren't you <laughs> um so uh, yeah, but it's uh, it it was a lot of fun. So uh, I recommend going to look for that if you're on Twitter on the hashtag Matt Corner, you can uh, you can find that. The most active thread in our Facebook group, I'm sorry to say, Royfield, or, or maybe it's because of that, was the one that Karen Cunningham posted about the most attractive and least attractive accents around the British Isles, which identified Brummie as the least attractive accent and Southern Irish as the most attractive accent most most regular listeners will not need to be told that Royfield is from Birmingham so but cool, um, well,
1: well, wait on a minute Sarah Spilsbury uh, you know I, I know technically you're not a Brummy, but we're she's we've black put, country but yeah we're putting <laughs> you in in the Brummy family here how do you feel about this Sarah it's only what we've known anyway that people despise the way that we speak in the UK what says you,
2: madam that's fine and within Throwing distance as a boundary, and I work for the local authorities. So, yeah, I'll throw me a like lot in with Brum. But, 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 how do you feel
1: about this Brum hate that everybody has for us? I think it's terrible. It is, it is. And, like, considering that, you know, kind of linguists and, and whatever basically say that Shakespeare spoke like us, you know, so basically, we can say that the English language comes forth from our accent. Just mm-hmm. saying, just saying.
3: Yeah. well I, I you love listen, blood I blood. love listening to Alison Hammond. I could listen to her all day. She's a, she, her it's a great accent. I'm baffled by that one. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, well, she, to, be, to be fair to her, she's done quite a lot to rehabilitate the Brummy accent. And I'll go so far as to say that she's only one of two kind of national news reader presenters that have a Brummie accent. The other one's Adrian Child. So having her on, it, you know, it's making us socially acceptable to be put on broadcast media. So well done, Alison Hammond.
2: I mean, I am a sucker for a Southern Irish accent, though. So, what can I tell you? Um, so, yeah, uh, Laura Munzer posted a fabric map of Africa, showing sort of traditional fabric patterns and textile patterns from Africa, and I love those. I'm a sucker for a textiles map and a crafts type map. You know, it's such a beautiful thing, and even though you only see a picture of it, uh, it almost feels tactile. Like you want you want to reach out and touch. The, uh, the different sorts of fabric and textile design. So um, I, I love that one. And also Sarah Spilsbury uh, posted a couple of months ago something that came out of a conversation kind of on a different group, which was around a map showing areas of the London Blitz and, and what happened and where the bombs dropped and what happened after. So you could sort of walk around London and see you know, where, where the bombs were. And, uh, and that's fantastic living history when you can go back and, and walk, those, walk those streets. Can I just and, quick, um, quick, quickly jump in there, Claire? Yeah. Because
1: the, the whole thing about, and I might have said this before on Matt Corner, I've got a feeling I said it on, on a podcast, but it with the trained eye, the the evidence of places which have been bombed in, in the Blitz is all around you in London. You've just got to be known what to look for. And one of the starkest examples that I was told, I used to live on a road called Torbay Road in Kilburn, in in London, and directly opposite there was a house. And if you looked at the first floor, or the second floor, if you're in North America, but first floor in the in the UK, the bricks halfway through were obviously newer, but it's only when you looked that you noticed it. And the lovely old lady who must have passed on now, who was he used to live next door to us bar but one, so two doors down. One day I was talking to her and she says, Oh, I remember. The, the lady, the single lady that used to live there up until 1941, until the Germans bombed the house, and, and she said, oh, she, she was really nice, and, and she said, look at the bricks there, that's when in the 1950s, when they rebuilt the second floor uh, of that house, and it was just such a, like, a, it, was, it was just an amazing thing, well, of course, you, you don't realise that all this evidence is actually around you. And then there was a story of the house opposite mine actually being bombed. And then eventually it was rebuilt in the 1950s and this poor lady and her daughter lost, lost their life, you know. And she'd lived in that house all of her life. She knew the story and, and she knew, knew the woman. But anyway, yes, yeah, so so thank yeah. you for that, Sarah, because it's, it's, it's a, an amazing thing to behold, you know, to have the map and to be able then to see maybe the gaps in 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 development or there's a newer building because actually that that place was destroyed
2: so yeah and then one of the most recent threads on the on the group was you know triggered a lot of conversation has been that the map that Stephen noak originally posted to the things that made england podcast which was around his personal experience of levels of friendliness around around And he's, he's, he delivers cars for a living. So he's got around delivering cars to pretty much most places and has built up a kind of background over time. I'm very sad to say that Bedfordshire, where I live, is in the most unfriendly section of that map. So that's, that's a bit sad. But yes, yeah, so it's triggered all sorts of debate about whether people are... Well, basically, people are just more friendly in the northeast. I think that's what it's telling us. But uh, really, There's really a little really, glob
1: of friendliness around the West Midlands and Birmingham just saying but not much friendliness around Bedfordshire and I wonder no no we're a right cold
2: bunch there yeah we're the worst but I did notice actually when we moved when we moved to Suffolk which are in the neutral section they were definitely more friendly than where we'd lived in Sussex before so you know I definitely I definitely sensed the difference there
1: and can I just say for our North American friends who are listening and watching in on this uh, Zoom and on this podcast recording I can categorically tell you that as a bunch, North Americans are more hospitable than us Brits. Full stop, absolutely. If you want to be somewhere in the world and stuck at a bar or a coffee shop and not know anybody, you best do it in North America because you, you'll, you'll make friends. People will actually take you in and uh, and show you around as opposed to doing it in Bedfordshire in England, just saying.
0: Is that before or after you're drunk?
1: <laughs> actually before even before, yeah. before.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh I'd, ju- I'd just be too too horrifically British to want to strike up a conversation with anyone else anyway then, oh.
1: and, and that is the problem and that is the problem and that's uh something which our North American friends aren't aren't you know they're not Inhibited by that, you know. Invariably, no. people are much more kind of like, "Hey, wh- where are you from? Where are you going?" etc., etc. So, anyway, and on that note, yeah. I'll let you get on with the, the social media roundup. And I've interrupted. No, that's about, you that's
2: about it. The only other one I was going to mention was Brett Watkins, who's our uh, our friend in Australia, had posted a map around uh, odd place names in the UK, which is always, you know, it's a, it's an old perennial map, but it's always good for a laugh around places with, you know, funny and rude place names. So uh, that one's in there as well. Um, I I saw an
3: amazing map posted to Twitter, which was a fish, a fisher's view of the world. And it was a really cool Antarctica projection. And in fact, from the Southern Seas, the entire world is seas, is ocean. And so I'll pass it on to you.
2: It was an amazing map. Oh, yeah, we love a projection. Yeah, yeah. Different projections are a lot of fun.
1: So uh, now is the time for us to go through and to recount the answers of the quiz question. I'm expecting
2: Joni to get eight out of eight here, I think.
1: Well, that, that, that's a thing. Normally, Joni, I do kind of put our guests on notice that they should not embarrass themselves. Right, yeah, that's good. That's, right. good. that's so... good. That's
3: good. Notice. That's good.
1: Notice. All right. Okay. Question number one sport. Which of these women's sport was the earliest to be included in the Olympics? What do you reckon, Joni?
3: Oh, it's archery.
1: And Claire, <laughs> the correct question is the
2: correct answer is archery 1904, swimming 1912, equestrian not till 1952, which I find oh, quite surprising. Waiting. I'm answering the quiz I thought everyone else was going to be uh, answering they the are
1: they're, they're, they're self-scoring but we're just they're checking that you've actually have. read your own book that's what oh. we do Joni that's what we're oh. checking All right yeah
2: so yeah I was really surprised it took till 1952 to include <laughs> the horsey stuff because you know you'd have thought that would be something that women were quite regularly doing back in the kind of 1900 early turn of the century and sw- you know probably before swimming I'd have but there you go yeah yeah me would,
1: too you know riding <laughs> side saddle and all of that <laughs> right question number two which country was the first to offer equal pay to its men's and women's national football teams now if i'm correct this only happened quite recently but i think i know the answer but Joni, what's the answer
3: Oh, Norway, of course. It's
1: absolutely Norway. <clears throat> yep.
3: And very recently, now that I can't remember, but we could look it up. 2017. Recently, yep. Yeah. Yeah, and in fact, it's still, as you know, in most sports from local to global, it's still very controversial, the whole pay discrepancy between uh, women athletes and male athletes in exactly the same sport. And uh, the gaps are sometimes astonishing. I mean, astonishing gaps. Uh, so, yeah.
1: Trying to throw a little bit of positivity onto sports pay and coverage. The burgeoning coverage of women's professional football in the UK is something to behold. It's come from yeah. utterly zero to being yeah. televised on TV in less than five years. And the professionalism of that league is, is going through the roof. And these women are, they're not paid as much as the men, but they've been but they're now being paid, whereas just less than ten years ago it was all amateur, so but we've got a long way to go. Question well. number three, politics, which of these countries has a quota for women's representation in national governance? Joni, over to you
3: Three cheers for India. I did not know that
2: Thanks. well, interestingly, because I've got the answers of China and Saudi Arabia, so um. Oh, my God. Let me go back and correct the thing. <laughs> oh, um. my
3: God. Could it be an error? It could be. Although India had very early quotas. India is known for very early quotas, perhaps, at the, um, perhaps more at the uh, local level. So that's probably the difference. Yeah. At the local level for India, they actually had a quota for 30% for uh, village councils. It made a huge difference. So I see, according to my map, you're correct, Claire. <laughs> but at the national level. <laughs> so, right, um... so,
1: so Joni, you were wrong. You didn't Boy. read your book correctly and Claire was right because you did read your book. I didn't, Dave. But three. I think India deserves an honorary mention because they do it at it the level. Yes. Yeah, it
3: does, yeah.
1: Okie dokie. Question number four. Beauty, which country has provided the most winners of Miss World? Would I be right, if I said Venezuela?
2: I believe you're right. You are right. It is Venezuela.
1: Okay, I can remember. Again, it just shows you how, maybe how fast time is a ticking or how old uh, I am. But I remember watching Miss World in the 1970s mm-hmm. with, with, with my mum and it was it was just something that you did and, and by the early 80s this was old-fashioned this was terrible you just, just didn't do it that thing <coughs> fell out of favour so fast but in the 1970s yeah. it was much see uh, much watched tv when Jamaica won my god were us Jamaicans proud right mm-hmm. so it was mm-hmm. you know we're on the map but also, though she didn't look stereotypically Jamaican, shall we say, but a woman right. from Jamaica could be seen as being beautiful throughout the world. You know, something to be incredibly proud of back then wouldn't fly now. You know, our mores have utterly changed. But, but I do remember that sense of uh, my parents, because anyway, I was kind of too young, being incredibly proud that somebody from Jamaica actually won. But anyway, Venezuela is the answer. Number five demography, the lowest birth rate in the world is 1.2 and we need was it 2.1 just to sustain the population don't we yeah it's 2.1 yep. uh, so 2.1. that's hong kong portugal singapore and south korea but which country has the highest birth rate of 7.6 i believe it's niger am i correct
3: it it is it is, it is niger Canadian. and it's pretty astonishing that's a pretty astonishingly high birth rate i just want to go back to beauty contest for one mm-hmm. second just to say that one of the really interesting things about just mapping beauty contests, which in itself might not be seen as a particularly interesting thing to do, but is to, you can actually see from the 80s moving forward, you can see the effects of globalization and uh, formerly socialist or communist or uh, liberation states jumping on the global beauty bandwagon. China sending contestants to global beauty contests like, really? Are you kidding me? you know, um, Zimbabwe. I mean, it's just astonishing. So you can actually do a really nice time series of when governments, because it is governments, after all, start sending or enabling contestants to be sent to these international contests. And it's a really interesting, unobtrusive measure of political economy shifts in the world.
2: I wonder if you could map those movements against Olympic participation as well, because, again, oh, that's that's kind of international stage where, you know, female participation has grown. And yeah. different you take different perspectives about the appropriateness of female participation in certain sports. So, you know, it's an interesting, interesting if they'll let them go to the beauty contest, but not to participate in the Olympics, for example, That's or vice very versa. Interesting.
1: Yeah. Mm. And just on that note, last year, was it last year? Because whenever I go home and I'm at mom and dad's, they've got daytime TV on. I think they're the only people in the UK still watching TV, my mum and dad, you know, it's, you know, uh, non-streaming TV. And Miss England, I believe it was, I don't know if it was Miss England or Miss United Kingdom, but she was black and she's the first woman last year to be Miss England or Miss United Kingdom. I, I forget which one it was. Mm. Uh, and she just talked about, A, the level of support that she'd got, because you've broken through this perceived barrier and be the amount of racist vitriol, you know, and wow. she, she was very positive about the whole thing, but she says that, you know, I have had a lot of people saying I shouldn't be there, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Anyway. Uh, so Najia was the answer there. Demography back. Women live longer than men, but which country has the highest life expectancy for women? Joni, the answer is Hong Kong,
3: Hong Kong,
2: Hong Kong. Maybe it's because they're gone. having fewer babies. I don't know. Could be. <laughs> <laughs>
3: <Right>. <laughs> let's start. Let's start making correlations here and that. Yeah. And and it's going up. I mean, uh, the the uh, life expectancy I think for women in Hong Kong right now is eighty-seven. Although I think I just heard wow. that it's up to even eighty-eight, which is you know an extraordinary kind of high average. So. Yeah, and that's going to
2: be interesting to see the impacts of the pandemic actually, because where you know, we've had very different sorts of mortality rates across the whole world, but they also track absolutely existing inequalities and vulnerabilities. So, you know, so we might see life expectancy drop on on that average because of that, but then, might you know, it plays out differently, like you say. So, but, you know, there are... So Hong Kong's 87... Chile's 84.7, Italy's 85.7. So there's, there's this thing about the Mediterranean countries, people living longer, and they, that, that, that seems to be borne out as well in the life expectancy data.
1: Religious freedom, question number seven. Only one country has laws both requiring women to wear religious dress and prohibiting women from wearing religious dress. I put my teeth in to say that. Uh, which one is it? Is it Russia, Belgium or Sudan? Joni, the answer is?
3: Well, it's Russia. And of course, we should put in actually some women in both of those because and it's very local uh, or regional. So for women in Chechnya, there's a, a local legislation that they must wear headscarves, whereas in some parts of Russia, uh, the hijab is banned. Um, so uh, on a, it's, it's not it's not so much country level as it is a more local level. But really interesting, this whole controversy around women's dress and women's dress reflecting um, religious or e- ethnic um, identity. It's just such a mess. Once you start getting into it, it's like, oh, really? People, there's so much confusion about how, how policymakers, as say from local to international level, want women to represent or not represent those backgrounds. It's like, wow, really interesting stuff.
2: Yeah. It was World Hijab Day this week. So I got involved. I was I saw some stuff on Twitter with some colleagues, you know, looking at how we were sort of celebrated, it. But it just caused a massive, so <laughs> just like debate about, you know, well, yeah. you know, I know some amazing hijab wearing women, and then also I know some people who would like prefer that it wasn't. You know, enforced, right. But I don't know anyone who's in a forced situation. So, you know, it's really it's really tricky. But it, it's a real. It's become a, such a visible expression that that it leads to people being targeted you know and that's that's just yeah it's just such a shame
1: yeah and the last question and the answer is not Buddhism Christianity or <laughs> Islam right but the last question is it's finance in most countries more that more men than women have a bank account but can you identify the one country in this list where women where more women than men have a bank account? And just run us through those answers again Claire. the
2: options were jamaica philippines and morocco
1: and uh Joni, you have the hot oh seat. you
3: know i i'm gonna turn it back to you i actually can't remember which of those <laughs> uh places but it's really interesting the banking patterns are really kind of counterintuitive in many instances i i might i might guess that it's morocco but i'm not 100 percent sure
2: Okay, so you've gone exactly the wrong way, Jenny, because Morocco is the place where there's the biggest banking gap between men and women. So, oh, so okay. men have right, a bank right. account, only 27% of women. And I, I, I have Moroccan, well, my ex-husband's Moroccan, so I have a sort of Moroccan family-in-law, and he has seven sisters. So again, high birth rate. So, But they are all amazing women, and they all have bank accounts. So like, it's really interesting. Actually, the answer is the Philippines. More <laughs> women than men have a bank account in the Philippines. In Jamaica, it's about almost exactly the same. So it's
3: like
2: one hmm. and field?
3: I wonder what kind of bank accounts that those are.
2: Financial institutions. So again, it's yeah. this issue about how you tra- how can you track people who are banking in
3: right. or outside Inform, of the Yeah,
1: yeah. I didn't realise how many central banks are issuing digital currencies now. And specifically, if you use Jamaica as an example, Jamaica is launching, the Jamaican Central Bank is launching digital dollars this year. They trialled it mm. last year. And one of the things which it will do will be to massively help rural populations so they don't have to go into town to go to go to ATMs, and it will stimulate rural economies. And specifically, the uplift will be, people think, with women, that women will actually not be... Ha- have to go through their husbands or the men basically the money will be on their phones and it will actually be in- incredibly secure so digital currencies could be something which helps level things up for women throughout the world mm. and specifically ubi in places like it was trialed in kenya and the the levels of female entrepreneurship went through the roof roof with women yeah actually, I'm- sorry go on joanie
3: yeah, no, no. I, I was just going to say, I'm I'm actually pretty familiar with Kenya and the system is called M-Pesa. And you're right that its its use has just been astronomically high. And I was actually last time I was in Kenya, which was, I guess three years ago. <laughs> since then, no one's been going anywhere. But I was talking with someone in the uh, one of the telecom companies, Safari Telecom, and she said one of the uh, features that M-Pesa offers is same day lending, of of small amounts of money. you know, so mm-hmm. if you're a a market vendor and you need to pick up your products in the morning to sell them a little later that day, you can get you know the equivalent of a three or four or five dollars loan. that has to be paid back online loan has to be paid back at the end of the day through the M-Pays system. And she said the early morning is so for same day lending is so disproportionately high. Uh, women women are such a disproportionate high percent of them because it's women who are small market vendors and they wake up first thing in the morning and they take out a loan so they can buy their goods so they can sell them and then they repay the loan 10 or 12 hours later it's an amazing system
1: mm, absolutely i'm going to go on good people onto gallery view i'm going to do in the time honored fashion so we had eight questions did anybody get all eight correct? If you, if you did, please wave, jump up and down, whoop and holler, and say, you are the one, you are the one, you are the one. Did anybody get all of these correct? Seven, correct. Six, correct. Oh, wow. I feel a tiebreaker situation coming on here. Five, correct. Nick Rowworth. No tiebreaker. Well done, Nick. Which ones did you get incorrect, sir? I'm you. Got the India one wrong. The uh, well, you kind of got it right, really. And the, you know what what I mean? the the Hong Kong one and the Russia one. Which I, oh, was, right. I was thinking, I was thinking of going for those, but I didn't in the end. So, yeah.
2: well, oh, I did right, say it know. was more educated guesses than anything else. So you know, it's a bit of luck, really.
1: No, I knew the archery one. <laughs> well, well done, sir. So you've got got to think uh, what audio postcard you're going to do for. for I've got a sneaky feeling, Nick. We have one saved up, but still, if you could do it in the next month, that'd be most awesome. Just in case, I'm wrong. Okay. Yeah, I've thought of something. uh, Brilliant. I can't remember what it is though. On the top of my head, (laughs) I'll try and make it not so long as the last one. Right, good people. I think we're just about done. So, Claire, is it time for us to hang up our maps, or do we have... Not until business? I give
2: you my map fact for the show. Oh, yes,
1: please. Yes, my favourite bit of the show.
2: Yeah, right, the bit you always forget. Um, <laughs> OK, so this time my map fact is staying with the women of mapping and it is that the largest mundi, medieval Mappamundi, is the Ebbsdorf map from 1234... And it was made by women. We think nuns at Ebstorf in Germany, and it take, takes up thirty goat skins. And I hadn't realised there's over a thousand mappa mundi out there. I mean, I know about the one in Hereford. Um, that's the one we hear about. Mm. Uh, but the Ebstorf map is another mappa mundi, uh, and there's loads of them. And but that was the absolute biggest one. So well done, the nuns at Ebstorf in the uh, 1230s were making the Ebstorf map.
1: Can, can I ask a really kind of like? maybe stupid question what if there are many mapamundis what makes a mapamundi a mapamundi
2: well i think it's that kind of um the thing about the mapamundi it's 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 a little bit more figurative isn't it It, it's sort of geographical but they tend to center around jerusalem as i recall and they have Mm. east at the top or they tended to have east at the top uh, and then they've got sort of they sort of mix the biblical and the and the kind of earthly in My experience, and uh, and I think that's true of this one. So, I don't know, maybe we should get someone in to talk about Mapamundis because I don't really know very much about it. That, that, that I'll force someone, we'll have them on a future podcast. Good idea.
3: I, it, yeah, I think I, one I of think the distinguishing so. character, characteristics is that it is of the world, which would be quite an accomplishment in particularly European medieval times when the world was not. Yet fully apprehended, so it was. That's why it was a, like a lot of imagination as well as some actual cartography. I think that's. I think that's one of the key features. But I stand ready to be corrected.
1: Well, that sounds as good a hypothesis as, as any. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so there you go. So you could well end up being clear that the expert you get on to explain why Mapamundi is a Mapamundi is Joni again. Just saying. No, 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 no,
3: no, 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 no. But I'm going to look it up afterwards.
2: <laughs> well, then you will be our expert. You got to go, 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 careful there.
1: <laughs> well, I, I think we've given you a right royal hour plus of map corner action, everybody. So, uh, so I really do think, Claire, it's time for us to, to fold up our maps. Is it not?
2: It is time for us to fold up our maps. So, uh, yeah, join us next month when we talk to Rosemary J. Brown about the travels of Nellie Bly and um yeah leave us a review and it's time to fold up the well.
1: map. smashing so i'm just going to say thank you to Joni for being part of the recording ken well not part of the recording the center that you know the pivot of which we've all just spun around in, in terms of this recording uh, it's lovely seeing you ken nick sarah andy jan from dumpty dum jennifer and patty lovely seeing you all and i'm most definitely going to fold up my map now